Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, pancreas transplants can offer hope to some diabetes patients. Five out of six diabetic patients will be insulin-free, will never have to check a box diabetic or chronic disease anymore, and will enjoy a normal life. Plus, with Summer here, we'll talk about how to keep kids safe around the water. The first thing is related to learning. It's really important that kids and adults uh, learn to swim and they learn CPR. And does the breast cancer gene play a role in prostate cancer? Being a, a, a men's health researcher, we get to benefit from cooperation because this gene has been extensively studied in the, in the breast cancer uh, field. We'll have all that in a selection from our Healing Muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we explore how to be safe around the water this summer. Plus, does the breast cancer gene play a role in prostate cancer? But first, with more and more Americans suffering from diabetes, we explore a new transplant option that offers hope to some of these patients. Today, more than 29 million Americans have diabetes, and almost 1.5 million are diagnosed with diabetes every year, and the numbers keep growing. But there's a transplant option for some patients with this disease. And here to tell us more about it are Dr. Reiner Grusner. He's professor of surgery and the division chief of transplant services at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Mark Leftavi. He's the director of the pancreas transplant program for Upstate's University Hospital. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Dr. Grusner, let me start with you. Help us understand this transplant option. What are we talking about? Well, thanks for having us here today, Linda. As you mentioned, uh, close to 30 million Americans are diabetic, and the number of the ones that are not being diagnosed may also be another 15 to 20, 25 million. Um, diabetes, as you mentioned, is uh, one of the most serious um, health problems that we face. It's the number one cause for blindness, the number one cause for end-stage kidney disease and patients having to go on dialysis, probably the number one cause for strokes, and for coronary heart disease. We are spending um, over $200 billion on diabetes, and the prospect of being insulin independent for diabetics through conservative, meaning um, uh, medications and so forth, um, becoming insulin independent are relatively small. So pancreas transplantation was developed um, several decades ago, was initially not that successful, but the results have significantly improved in the 1990s, and nowadays we are looking at uh, five out of six pancreas transplants working at one year, meaning five out of six diabetic patients will be insulin-free, will never have to check a box diabetic or chronic disease anymore, and will enjoy a normal life. So let me get this straight. You're basically saying that by transplanting a pancreas, they are no longer diabetic. Absolutely correct, Linda. You do not require any insulin. You can eat whatever you want to. You can have a brownie. You can have a Coke. Um, not a diet Coke, a regular Coke, and you don't have to check your blood sugar anymore. Okay, so who are the patients within this diabetic population who are most likely to benefit from this? It sounds like it would be a cure, so to speak, for all, but that's not exactly the case. Correct. There are basically two groups, and I will just focus on one of the two groups. Those are the brittle diabetics. Now, we have the great advantage of having a great Jocelyn Center here right in town, in Syracuse, and uh, they see thousands of patients with diabetes. Now, for many, and the majority of them, I mean, they have wonderful devices, 
pumps and so forth in place. To maintain their insulin, to keep their... They still will be um, on insulin, but I mean, their blood sugars are much better controlled. But then there are about 5 or 10% of the patients that no matter how hard they try, the doctors try, the patients try, they will have, the patient will have brittle diabetes. Now, for those patients, a pancreas transplant alone is an option. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. We use the term brittle diabetes. Help us understand what that means exactly. Is it, you say they can't control, so are there big swings in their blood sugar and leading to further damage, that kind of thing? Correct. The swings can be as extreme as in the teens or 20s to up to 1,000. And then the secondary complications of diabetes is what, what, what eventually kills them. Uh, those complications, as I mentioned before, uh, I mean, uh, affect the kidneys, the heart, uh, the blood vessels, and so forth. And blindness and all kinds of other... Absolutely. So let's get back to the pancreas transplant. Mo this is mostly for patients then who are designated as quote-unquote brittle diabetics or ones with labile diabetes. And then there is a second group, and that second group are patients who have an underlying kidney disease. Let me talk to Dr. Laftavi here. Dr. Laftavi, explain to us the distinction. Why? Because I've heard that sometimes you would do a dual transplant where you would do a kidney and a pancreas. Explain why that would be and who these patients are. Thank you, Linda. Um, well, let me say that, you know, despite all this treatment for diabetes, uh, uh, what it is conventional or strict diabetic uh, control, we cannot halt or reverse the secondary complication of diabetes. So we can control the blood sugar very well, but uh, despite the well control of the blood sugar, still the complication of diabetes will continue, like uh, um, damage to the eye, to the kidney. The only way that's shown that actually can halt or stop the damage to the organs are transplant, because you got an organ there that work 24-7 and regulate your blood sugar. Now, when, when it comes to the diabetes, then uh, there's three options, as we said, but uh, the most, I mean, um, curing option is a pancreas transplant. But why, in some cases, do you do the, yes. the dual transplants? Now, if you have uh, diabetes and you are on dialysis, actually is very dangerous disease because there is about 19.7% uh, mortality per year. So the damage from dialysis and diabetes together will hurt your body even further. So these people who are diabetic and they need a kidney transplant, they will get kidney and uh, pancreas at the same time. And these have been shown to be successful both in restoring the kidney function and also basically eliminating right. the diabetes? Absolutely, because you know their primary disease is diabetes, the diabetes that killed their own kidneys. So now we need to treat the primary disease, which is diabetes, but also because of their kidneys lost, then they need a kidney transplant. Now there are people who actually receive the kidney transplant and they are still diabetic. So those can come and have a pancreas because, again, their primary disease is diabetes. So that's really the core issue. The, the core. source of all of the problems yeah. really is the diabetes. And the third one that we I like the most is uh, transplant of pancreas early in the stage of diabetes. I mean, we should not wait till the patient become blind or chopped, you know, their legs or their limbs and uh, come for transplant. We can cure diabetes actually at the early stage before it really damaged the body, though that's what we call pancreas transplant alone. In those young people who have a brittle diabetes, the major things they actually is hypoglycemic and awareness. That's what we call it. Because these people, their sugar goes down, it, they may actually kill themselves when they are driving, because they are not, let me just to help explain that, because I think I understand what you're saying. If you have a lot of brittle, you have a lot of variation in the blood sugar, you right. may not, you may lose the sensitivity. You become unaware of the shifts. And in that case, maybe not be able to treat yourself properly with the insulin or what have you. And you could literally, it's life-threatening. Well, that the side, effect, the side effect of very strict diabetic control, because for those, we have to use a lot of insulin to keep the sugar at the reasonable level. And those are more prone to get hypoglycemia. And when your sugar goes down, then 
you become unconscious. And that, if you're driving, you may kill yourself. <laughs> or someone else. Or a lady <laughs> told me she found herself in the apple basket at Wegman because she didn't know where she is. she is. That's pretty frightening stuff. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with pancreatic transplant surgeons, Dr. Mark Laftavi and Dr. Reiner Grusner. We're talking about transplants of the pancreas. Dr. Grusner, how is it actually done? I mean, what do we, let's go back to just pancreas. What, what happens? Well, <clears throat> we do not replace the existing pancreas. So the native pancreas stays in place. So we add the pancreas. It's different in that regard than the liver or the lung, uh, lung or the heart, where we take the native organ out and we replace it. With the kidney and the pancreas, we just add it to it. So it is a procedure that is done through the belly. We connect it to the blood vessels in the, in the pelvis, <coughs> lower portion of the abdomen. And the procedure itself takes about three to four hours. Uh, the, the risk of dying as a diabetic after transplantation is less than one, less than five percent um, over the first year. Now compare that to the mortality of all diabetics um, within one year. Um, that is about fifteen to twenty percent. So the patients, of course, are well selected that can undergo a pancreas transplant, but the risk of dying is is very, very minimal. The chances of becoming non-diabetic, insulin-free, are very high. They are way over 85%. Is it hard to find the donors? I mean, these are basically people who are deceased are the donors. I mean, can anyone be a donor to a pancreas donor? Well, in theory, yes. Um, we have, um, um, by and large, about 10,000 uh, donors um, per year in the United States. Some um, people that uh, were kind enough and thinking of um, other human beings in need to donate organs. Now, we are very selective when it comes to the pancreas because, as you know, the propensity to develop diabetes over time increases. So we are primarily looking for donors that are relatively young, that have no other um, comorbidities, and uh, where we can almost guarantee a good outcome once we use the pancreas. So let's get to the outcomes for a second. I mean, in, in terms of the, the um, let's start with just the pancreas, and then, then we'll go to the dual um, sur surgeries. How do these patients do over time? They do very well. There are now patients out for more than 30 years um, without insulin requirements, an increasing number over 20 years, and then a few thousands over 10 years. We actually um, are home to the International Pancreas Transplant Registry here at Upstate, and we oversee about 50,000 or over 50,000 pancreas transplants worldwide, about 30,000 of them done in the United States and 20,000 outside. So we have been able to really be um, uh, research a pacemaker in terms of what is best for, I mean, this huge patient cohort in terms of immunosuppressive therapy so that patients don't reject in terms of surgical techniques. The results are excellent, uh, um, um, although if you have a kidney transplant, the kidney seems to further protect the pancreas. So the outcomes are slightly worse for those that undergo a pancreas transplant alone, but the results are great for those that have a kidney at the same time or undergo a pancreas after a previous kidney. How about this idea of having to take this anti-rejection medication? Does that complicate the outcome? Because obviously if, you've, if you have both a kidney and a pancreas or just the pancreas, you're lifelong continuing to take that medication, aren't you? Yes, I mean, but um, the harm of the medication has shown that much less than the harm of the diabetes. So the diabetes itself is more harmful compared to the harm of the immunosuppression. The immunosuppression is almost the same for the kidney and pancreas or pancreas alone. Uh, the issue that when you do a kidney and pancreas at the same time because they come from the same donor, then we can monitor the kidney for rejection. So there is a better monitoring for rejection. When the pancreas come different from other donors, then we cannot use the kidney because it came from a different donor. So it's a little more complicated. Exactly, to as, a, as a marker for rejection. Uh, and therefore, some people may reject um, and it's difficult to find. But is it, is it, it go ahead. But is, you know, to wait just to have kidney and pancreas at the same time, it may take longer. We can do transplant faster and earlier if you wait only for a pancreas. So if you got a living donor, particularly because, as I said, the harm of the 
dialysis and diabetes is very huge. So if you have a living donor, you better to do a living donor kidney transplant and then get a pancreas. That's the best option available at this time. I don't want to run out of time, but I know there's another option that has, it's on the horizon that's very, very exciting. Rather than transplanting an entire pancreas, there is the opportunity to transplant the islets of the pancreas. Dr. Gerstner, briefly explain that and what, and right now it's not available because it's in, only in clinical trials available. Explain it. Yeah, there has been a lot of publicity recently about islet transplantation. In short, only 2% of the pancreas produce um, islets, those are the insulin-producing cells. The remaining 98% have nothing to do with um, glucose control. Um, <clears throat> the results recently of islet transplantation have gotten notoriety because um, it appears that Medicare Medicaid at some point may cover that procedure, and that will change, I mean, the life for diabetic patients. The issue is, is that insulin independence from islet transplantation is not as easily achieved as with pancreas transplantation. At Upstate, we are currently in the process of building a laboratory that will enable us to do islet transplants, and I think within the next two or three months, we can give you an update, Linda, as how this progresses and what the options for our patients will be. And those patients will do very well, but will not even have to take immunosuppressive drugs, am I correct? Uh, that is true for patients who have chronic pancreatitis, where we use the native pancreas and give the cells back. For patients with diabetes, we still are dependent on donors, diseased donors, and they still will require immunosuppressive therapy. These are such exciting uh, developments. I thank you so much, both of you, for coming in and sharing them with us. My guests have been Dr. Reiner Grusner. He's Professor of Surgery and the Division Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate Medical University, and Dr. Mark Leftavi, the Director of the Pancreas Transplant Program for Upstate's University Hospital. Coming up next, how to stay safe around the water this summer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Cohen here with you. Drowning is the leading cause of injury-related death among children between ages 1 and 4, and the second leading cause of death for children ages 1 to 14 years old, ranking second only to motor vehicle collisions. And with summer here and lots of opportunities to cool off in ponds, lakes, and swimming pools, it's imperative that all responsible adults understand the basics of water safety for children. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. Robert Neumeyer. He's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and a Pediatric Critical Care Physician and the Medical Director of the Pediatric Critical Care Transport at Upstate, Upstate Golisano's Children's Hospital. Um, he's also a former lifeguard and a swim instructor. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming in, Dr. Neumeyer. It's great to be here. So drowning's a real danger. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something I thought I would touch on, um, our definitions. Recently, our team was at uh, the Leon Festival, um, sponsored by Upstate, and a number of parents were coming up to me um, mentioning that uh, they're a bit confused, and they asked me questions about things like dry drowning or other definitions of drowning. Dry drowning is inhaling pool water, and it can cause a problem that you may not see right away. If a child's breathing faster or harder, even hours or a day after being at a pool, for example, a caregiver should call their doctor or consider calling 911. Uh, I think it's, it's less important to pin down uh, a definition, but um, more important to focus on uh, maybe something more unifying. So drowning is defined as any respiratory difficulty due to submersion in a liquid. I think what's more important is recognizing the danger that access to water poses to children and to know that there are steps to help prevent a child from drowning. But I, I read a very uh, a striking statistic. I had said some earlier ones in the introduction, but I had like one in seven children that are admitted to the hospital for drowning die in the hospital, and at least one-third of those who survive may have long-term neurologic problems, for example, difficulties with learning, movement, or speech. Yeah, unfortunately, in the pediatric ICU where I work, uh, it's not uncommon at this time of the year in particular uh, to see 
kids severely impaired or, or dying, unfortunately, because of a drowning. So it really is a very, very serious problem. So, you know, this is the time of year we're all around water, we're around water of all different types. Some, is, some are formal swimming environments, some are less formal, spontaneous swimming environments. You have mentioned that there are five critical ways to keep kids safe. Why don't we start going through them? What's, what's the first and most important one? Yeah, there are really five things I would suggest, but the first thing is related to learning. It's really important that kids and adults uh, learn to swim and they learn CPR. Um, and this so is, those are two yeah. separate things in a way, but part Absolutely. of the same idea. Yeah. So learning to swim is crucial. Absolutely. And the thing is, there are a lot of kids out there who may never have an opportunity to learn to swim in a formal way. So first and foremost, What's the youngest age that you would recommend starting to uh, begin to teach a kid to swim? Uh, when I've taught in the past, uh, as young as uh, three years old, typically for group lessons, uh, you could do something uh, privately, probably even earlier than that. And as long as a child's with a responsible adult, uh, really any age is okay. I, there were programs way back, I remember when I was a young mother, where they were taking six-month-olds, and they were actually, I think programs called Water Babies, this kind of thing, where they were exposing them to water. They were actually letting them be submerged in water for a few seconds here and there. <laughs> um, have you seen any uh, statistics or you know, any issues with regard to success with those kinds of programs? Or would you recommend sure. people starting as young as as you know below a year of age and so i think you're alluding to uh, toss them in the pool and see what happens <laughs> um, in the right setting uh, it could be uh, fun meaning there's a uh, uh, an instructor there on receiving that child in the water um, if an adult uh, or a parent isn't comfortable uh, i wouldn't recommend that. Uh, that that's certainly unsafe um, Something else you bring up, though, is, uh, is access to lessons. Not everyone can uh, be a member of the YMCA uh, or be able to pay for swim lessons. So I think it's important that people are logging into the American Red Cross website, maybe check in with your local parks and recreation department uh, or a local community center. There, there are ways um, to uh, access swim lessons, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to pay for them. And, and I think some children are, or some, some populations are actually afraid of water and they don't expose their children early on to swimming. But I guess you're underscoring the importance that everyone really should know how at least to tread water to preserve themselves if they find themselves over their head in, in a water situation. Absolutely. Once you've learned to swim, uh, even some basic strokes, it's really very empowering and you feel confident in the pool. What about something like CPR? You did allude to that. You said that is also of crucial importance, but it's not something that the normal layperson really generally knows how to do. So what? Yeah. how do you recommend people getting that skill set? Yeah, I, I would love it if everyone uh, took a CPR class. Um, that may uh, that may not always be possible for people to do it. They may not feel comfortable, I think, uh, might be the more uh, pertinent way to put it. But I think um, similar to uh, to the swimming uh, lessons. It's, it's really very important that adults are considering that, um, especially if they're going to have their kids in and, around, uh, in and around water. Are there special places to get these CPR lessons for the lay population? I know that they're available, for example, for medical personnel mm -hmm. and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in terms of would your local Y be in a place to learn CPR, that kind of thing, or community centers for that matter? Yeah, those are absolutely the places uh, to do it. So if you're a parent, I guess what I'm hearing you say, learning CPR is probably as important as learning to swim. <laughs> absolutely. So that if you were in a circumstance, you could really help an individual or your very own child for that matter. Mm -hmm. So what's the third thing that you think is really important in terms of the, uh, if you approach a swimming area, is it important to be able to kind of scope out what you see as potential hazards? For example, if you're in a pool setting, to know where the deep water is, if you, to know kind of what the diving board situation is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mentioned the buddy system. Uh, linking up children is really important. Um, and another one is really looking out for potential hazards around a pool. Um, so it can be as basic as looking out for a diving board uh, that you're nervous about as a parent or your child is too young to be on, uh, knowing where the shallow and deep areas of the pool are, for example. At a neighbor's home, something that can really set you up for um, uh, danger as well is our areas of the house, uh, windows or doors, for example, that are unlocked or unsecured immediately uh, proximate to a pool.
So you want to make sure that access to the pool or access to water in some ways is supervised at all times when you have children around. Yeah, and that really segues to the fourth thing that, that I want to stress is, uh, is locking up a pool. So make sure whether it's your pool, your neighbor's pool, or a public pool that you're comfortable with uh, the security. For example, bathroom doors um, at a public pool, for example, coming from a bathroom to the pool is locked. Otherwise, you're accompanying your, your child. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with pediatrician Dr. Robert Newmeyer. We're talking about the importance of water safety to prevent accidental drownings. So um, you toddlers seem to be the ones that you hear about so frequently as having accidents around water. Why, why is that? Why are they more um, at risk? Toddlers, uh, and I should know, I have a 13-month-old. They're mobile, and they don't know any better. Um, there's a reason every little boy wants to be Superman, uh, because he thinks he is. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've taken care of a number of kids, and I mentioned this, um, that, that can die in the hospital, uh, because it was as simple as mom or dad or a babysitter looking away just for an instant, uh, taking in the groceries, for example. Um, or they thought uh, a group of adults thought there was more adequate supervision, for example, at a pool party. Uh, it, can, it can really happen fast, and the consequences can be quite devastating. What about teenagers? I mean, I think it's, while you say toddlers may think they're Superman, I think it also can be said that some teenagers think they're Superman or Superwomen sure. and don't have a sense. They have a need for excitement and maybe not a sense of risk. Sure. So what do you say about that, teenagers around yeah. water? Developmentally, uh, that age is all about risk-taking. Um, if uh, he or she is aware of a possible consequence or a likely outcome, uh, he or she might feel that the rules still don't apply uh, to him or her. Peer pressure or substance uh, use uh, or abuse could add to that feeling as well. So just like with a toddler as a parent or a responsible adult, you have to figure out ways to set limits, but uh, it's not easy in either of those age groups. So do you think it's really important, besides having teaching your children to swim and perhaps having them learn CPR, to also stress the potential dangers around water, even for teenagers. I mean, all along to understand the issue of the buddy system, the issue of looking around for hazards, not jumping into a dark pond, not knowing what might be lurking there. And I'm thinking more like rocks than animals, that kind of thing. Are those the kinds of things you think are important to, to tell your children? All yeah, the way through their absolutely. developmental. All of those things apply, and it's not just a young child. Uh, you're tempted almost to make the assumption that they're old enough, they're responsible enough, they should know better. And uh, I think you really run into trouble that way. Young kids, typically it is a residential pool or a public pool. Um, older kids, it may be out with some friends and uh, a, a cliff or uh, fresh water, salt water. So the idea of establishing rules for your family around water, I think, is kind of along the lines of what you're suggesting. Yeah, and make, make sure you're having a dialogue uh, about where you're going to be and, and uh, maybe evaluating that site ahead of time, particularly if uh, you know your, uh, your teenager's going to head there. So um, basically the whole issue here is prevent unsupervised access to the water with young children and with older children who have more independence really make water safety concepts forefront in their minds as they approach the water. What about things like boating? Because that's something today that is, um, you know, very popular. A lot of kids are out on, even they're out on rowboats or small motorboats themselves. Let's talk about boating. What are the kind of critical things to remember? Yeah, particularly in this area, um, you see a lot of interest in boating, uh, given the number of lakes. I think the most important and most fundamental step really could be having all passengers uh, wearing a flotation device. Uh, and that's often overlooked. Mm. I think it's it's yeah. not looked upon as being cool to have your life jacket on when you're in a boat with your friends or family for that. A lot Absolutely. of adults don't model that as well, I've noticed. I agree. So definitely having uh, every non-swimmer, but really everyone in, in the boat, regardless of their swimming ability, should be in a flotation device. And how about use of alcohol? Yeah, it's worth reminding everyone uh, drinking alcohol and operating a boat in all 50 states is illegal. Uh, if the boat is stopped and you're not operating the boat, um, my understanding is that's okay. But um, they should consider how alcohol consumption, meaning the adults taking care of kids in particular, can impact their ability to keep a child safe. And what about things like cell phone usage? I mean, I know well, this is going back to perhaps the scene where mm -hmm. a lot of parents are standing around a pool or at a, at a per, you know at a private pool kind of situation where there may not be a lifeguard employed, um, I think there's a tendency for people to get distracted with their cell phones and you know 
is that something to really be cautious about as well? That's a great point. You can even see it walking down the hall <laughs> and you're, you're tempted to say, oh, please look up and don't run into me. Uh, so, <laughs> right, there are accidents on the street all the time. Absolutely. When it comes to supervising uh, your children around water, I would encourage them, uh, keep it in mind that it's a responsibility. What do you do as an adult, though? I mean, is there when there's a lifeguard there, is that sufficient? Or do you need to also kind of have a sense of hypervigilance, whether it's your child or not? In, in that type of setting? Sure. Lifeguards can be um, reassuring, and they should be. Uh, they're arguably responsible for everyone's safety at the pool or at the beach, for example, but um, uh, they're very well trained to recognize non-swimmers and those who are at high risk for drowning, but they're uh, not, they can't take responsibility for all the kids. Um, and it may not be possible if you have multiple kids in trouble. So yeah. the idea is, I guess, that all ad responsible adults who are swimmers should at least have some concept of life-saving capability or life-saving yeah. skills. It doesn't mean every parent has to take a lifeguarding course. Uh, but what I'm saying is that prevention is key, and every parent has a role in that prevention. So despite a lifeguard or lifeguards uh, being there, parents and responsible adults have to be keeping an eye on their kids as well. These are really great points. I really appreciate your sharing them with us. One last thing. Sure. You're part of this critical care transport team. Would your team ever be involved in transporting a child? who was uh, involved in a drowning, quickly tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So what's really important to know about our critical care team is it's an extension of our pediatric ICU at Golisano Children's. So it's essentially getting our PICU to the bedside of a child at another hospital. So if a child's in trouble at another hospital and they could use some help, uh, parents could ask if our team could come and help. So that's, that's a really great service. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Robert Neumeyer. He's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and a Pediatric Critical Care Physician and the Medical Director of the Pediatric Critical Care Transport at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next up, some new research that links the breast cancer gene to prostate cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. About 180,000 new cases of prostate cancer and more than 26,000 deaths from the disease are anticipated in the United States in 2016, making it the most frequent cancer among United States males, second only to skin cancer. And the second leading cause of cancer death in men exceeded only by lung cancer. But some new research findings are hoping to identify who is most at risk for the aggressive and lethal forms of this disease, which could aid in early and definitive treatment. Here to tell us more about this is Dr. Srinivas Vorganti, an assistant professor of urology at Upstate Medical University and the co-author on a recent study shedding light on this topic. Welcome, Dr. Vorganti. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today. So you just published a study that links one's genes to the risk of developing aggressive and lethal prostate cancer. Tell us about it. Absolutely. So uh, what we did is we put together uh, the world literature uh, of men who ha harbored the breast cancer gene uh, known as BRCA2. I believe that many people will be more familiar with this gene uh, as it relates to to women's health, uh, as it's been associated with breast and ovarian cancer uh, that runs in families. And there are many uh, high-profile cases, such as Angelina Jolie, uh, who uh, underwent preventative surgery when she was uh, faced uh, with this mutation. And this has touched many people's families. While it doesn't drive most breast cancer, it is something that is well understood. Do we understand, just to interject here, do we understand the mechanism by which the BRCA gene does affect or does cause or lead to the breast cancer? Absolutely. And in fact, uh, being a, a, a men's health researcher, we get to benefit from cooperation because this gene has been extensively studied 
in the in the breast cancer uh, field. So what BRCA does is it's a gene family, and in fact, uh, in BRCA we focused on BRCA two of the family, but there's BRCA one and BRCA two. What these genes do is they repair uh, damage to DNA, so they're part of uh, housekeeping. As we live and go outside and are in the sun, we uh, are beholden to much damage to our DNA, which the body repairs. And there are whole systems in place. What BRCA does is it, it fixes uh, damage to DNA, and when there are mutations which impair uh, the protein gene product from doing its job of fixing the DNA, um, women have been known to uh, develop breast and ovarian cancer and other cancers. But what we've known for a while is that uh, other cancers, including prostate cancer in men, uh, is, uh, uh, is harbored in the males in such families. So the idea here is that th there is a system within our body, the BRCA genes, govern this system of protecting us by repairing our DNA. And something happens, a mutation within those genes, that prevents them from doing their job, so to speak. And therefore, we're more prone, women are more prone to breast cancer. And now you're suggesting that your studies have, have shown that men who also have these mutations in BRCA may also be more susceptible then to prostate cancer. Absolutely. So tell us about what you did exactly in terms of your study. So the the idea of BRCA being involved in more cancers than just breast cancer has been around for a while. And in fact, there have been several trials internationally uh, that have uh, studied this very closely. So what we did is we put together multiple studies. In fact, uh, out of 289 studies, we were we picked very stringent criteria in that we didn't want men just to have been in a family, but rather to have been genetically confirmed to have the mutation. There are multiple mutations, multiple ways that can this can go wrong. And of these 289 studies, we uh, were able to uh, find 12 studies that met our criteria, and we identified 261 men. Uh, with confirmed BRCA mutations. What we discovered uh, is that these men were much more likely to develop cancer than men without the gene. And in fact, the nature of the cancer with which they presented with was much more aggressive. And most strikingly, nearly 20% of the men uh, presented with cancer that had already spread. So it was more aggressive and more, it had been more metastasized, and it was more lethal in that sense? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most important aspects of cancer is that when found at an earlier state, it is much more curable. And it, essentially, when cancer has already spread with current technology, it is essentially uncurable. We can control it. We can slow it down. Uh, in many different ways. However, it's not curable anymore. One of the mainstays of screening is to find cancers and potentially lethal cancers and uh, nip them in the bud before they cause trouble. And uh, what we've discovered is that men who harbor BRCA mutations, especially the BRCA2 mutation, are much more likely for this to happen quickly at a younger age and essentially uh, underneath the radar show up with it already uncurable. So now that's a profound you know, finding, and, and obviously you spent a lot of time looking at studies that already existed, but by putting them all together and coming to that conclusion, that's a very powerful statement that you're making. Yeah, absolutely. I think that what what we discovered, and this was really actually the seed of this came from a, a medical student at, at Upstate, which, which is always the best way of exploration. Uh, she, uh, she approached me while, um, while on the wards, having come off of uh, a women's health focus and said, you know, I'm very interested in prostate cancer, but I just studied uh, breast and ovarian cancer and I see that there's a link. And I said, well, I'm aware of this link she mentioned to me that there's not much out there about it. And I said, wow, it, it, sometimes when, you're an, when you have expertise in something, you don't know what people don't know. And what, by putting this together, essentially what we did is we were able to capture how the men presented uh, clinically. And we're able to uh, talk uh, 
uh, aid in uh, conversing with families that face this. And even in my own clinic, uh, I've had family uh, men with cancer in the family. And this is a routine question you're asked. Do you have any cancer running in the family? If you were to ask, in general, uh, there are many uh, physicians that wouldn't be able to speak to this because much is being discovered. And so dragging this out of uh, research studies and clinical trials and whatnot and bringing it to the forefront of clinical medicine is, is a mission of, of, uh, that, we, that we all share. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with urologist Dr. Srinivas Varganti. We're talking about the relationship of the BRCA gene or mutations in the BRCA gene to prostate cancer. So there were some other studies that actually have recently um, been quoted or been looked at that have also supported this this notion of the BRCA relationship. They're a little different, though. They have found some other things. I thought we'd just very briefly review those or go over them. So there was a second study or another study that reviewed the DNA samples of a certain number of prostate cancer patients from the Walter Reed um, Medical Center in Bethesda, and they found an interesting fact about black prostate cancer patients, that they were three times as likely to have the BRCA gene mutation as white patients, so that seemed to exist more in the black population, and that they were, and the cancers that they shown were more aggressive, and they spread, they were more aggressive, and they were more lethal. So it's been long known that African-Americans harbor more aggressive prostate cancers that happen at a young age, but a real meaningful biologic understanding has uh, yet to be grasped. And so this is uh, most likely not the whole story, but it's very interesting and gives us a starting point to start to personalize medicine because what we do know is uh, an individual is not described solely by their race but really, more, uh, more, the more we study it is we're, we're defined by our genes and how our genes behave and the proteins they make. These are connected to the families that they're, we're in and where we're from and the color of our skin. But th- there's more to it than that. And so uh, what we don't want to do is we, we want to use this to arm us in the future to help us. So uh, in the same way, uh, we don't I think ultimately we want to be able to treat people in a personalized fashion. So when someone comes in and says, well, you know, uh, I'm an African-American, well, should, I, should I screen for prostate cancer the same as a Caucasian? What should I do if there's lots of prostate cancer in my family? What if my sister has breast cancer? These are all things that as time goes on, we aren't going to look at you with, a, well, we don't know anything about that, but we should uh, continue to push forward and, and start to... Uh, study this carefully. So here's where personalized cancer treatment or personalized targeted therapies are so important. And knowing some of these issues around genetics and also the racial differences, I mean, we often say who is more at risk for certain diseases. That's not racial profiling. That's in, in a good sense, that's racial profiling. Absolutely. If it can lead to, you know, being more aggressive in terms of treatment and identification. So there was a third study that was very interesting that I came upon, or another study that that was reported in this same um, series of articles that talked about the fact that certain number of men who had been treated for breast cancer, and we know that it's a rare thing for men to have breast cancer when compared to women, for example, or even compared to have them having prostate cancer. But a certain number of men who had been treated for breast cancer, um, that 30% uh, had an increased risk of developing prostate cancer later on. So again, the link between breast cancer and prostate cancer was made, was underscored. Absolutely. And really, what we have discovered is that once you have cancer in your family and a personal history of cancer, certainly, you are more at risk for developing other cancers. And that is, uh, that's true across many spectrum of cancer. But uh, the mechanisms of male breast cancer are very, very poorly understood. Um, But certainly, uh, as a, as a, um, as a provider that provides care for uh, prostate cancer, 
we what we need to do is we need to start to understand who is more at risk or less at risk and there's no one right answer but what most people want to do is come up with a uh, a, a rational plan for keeping an eye on uh, on their overall general health so the BRCA the whole notion of the BRCA mutations could be a, one of those tools then based on all these your your evaluations and these other studies suggest that there we really should be looking at the BRCA mutations within certain populations. Yeah, so the most exciting part of the BRCA story is that this is a relevant thing that comes to the clinic, mostly because people start to become aware of their BRCA status through their wives and their sisters and their mothers, and they're beholden to this information. As time goes on, our genetic status is going to become uh, closer to our blood type. Uh, there are commercially uh, there are commercial entities. Twenty three and me. Twenty three and me exactly. And uh, more and more, the gene profile of your tumor is being sent out in commercialized tests. So this is leaving sort of an experimental clinical trial setting, and patients are going to have to sit on it. And so it's not uncommon for a family member to approach me and say, "My wife had." BRCA-related breast cancer, what should I do? Well, how does that impact treatment choices then? In other words, would a prostate cancer patient who tested positive for BRCA respond differently or better to cancer treatments that are more effective in treating BRCA-positive BRCA breast cancer patients, that kind of thing? So um, as it relates to the clinic, the most actionable thing from this information is decisions with screening. And that is, there's been a, a huge retreat from screening because when applied to the general population, PSA-based screening has resulted in overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And many have advocated a, a scaling back, and there, this is already being seen in our community. However, what we what we are already seeing and what we fear is that men who are at high risk of disease will be left behind. and High the, risk for lethality. Lethality of disease. And in the era before PSA, uh, men presented with prostate cancer at a very late state, at about 25% of them were metastatic on presentation, and many of them went on to die. Nowadays, it's much less. However, mixed into this are many men who are being treated who would otherwise not have died or have been impacted by their disease. So what we want to do is if you are in such a family uh, or if you are at such risk, and whether it be BRCA or other family history, you probably need to discuss with your doctor a more uh, diligent screening strategy. What our study showed is those men who were in formal screening actually had no presentation of metastatic disease versus nearly 30% of those men that were that were caught without a formal screening process. So when you are in an, in an at-risk population, there is a great benefit uh, to, to being more screening. As far as treatment, uh, there, there. Um, this is all very new, and there are some experimental agents that have shown great promise in BRCA. Uh, there are agents called the PARP inhibitors that are undergoing clinical trials right now. And so, what we'll discover is, as time goes on, we will not only know that you have prostate cancer, but what kind of prostate cancer, and then we'll have an agent to aim at it. Tremendous! Thank you so much. That's very. That's again personalized targeted therapies. Thanks again. My guest has been Dr. Srinivas Varganti, Assistant Professor of Urology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. One of the enduring topics The Healing Muse receives concerns grief, such a profound and sometimes frightening emotion. I'd like to share work from two of our writers, one an essayist, one a poet, as each grapples with the aftermath of loss. The first comes from central New York writer and self-described recovering academic, Jill Swenson. Here is an excerpt from her essay, Crazy Chick Waiting for a Collect Call from the Sundance Kid. Grief hits me upside the head, knocks the wind right out of my sails, cuts me off at the knees, weighs on my chest heavier than a two-ton truck, presses down on my shoulders, and racks my addled brain. Grief washes over me. 
Grief inflicts itself upon my soul uninvited and unwelcome, slips into my life on a stealth mission, takes me hostage, and shakes me down. It might be a verb, but grieve isn't something I do. It's something done to me. I try to manage my responses to the reality of death, but bodily reactions don't allow my mind much control over the matter. Lead feet, bowed head, shoulders to ears, hollow eyes, snot and tears. Grief grabs your appetite and spits it in your face. Death casts grief like a shadow upon those left living. It is a physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual wallop. I stand in the shade of the tree of forgiveness and wail. Yes, Sam's death feels like a spanking for which I examine my conscience for the sin that evoked it. Grief can bring along its relatives, guilt, the what-ifs, and shame. Grief makes me feel naked. Every nerve is exposed and raw, sensitive to the touch, the shadow, the memory. I'm ashamed to be a widow. It's a status assigned, not elected, not my choice. I resist, but it is futile. Grief makes me regress, irritable and fussy like a teething baby. My patience, good manners, and small virtues got sucked out of my soul with his spirit's departure. The second reading is from Arizona poet Donna Pfluger. Her poem is entitled, How to Endure the Beast Called Grief. Be a grackle, shine with the glossy black of loss. Stare down grief with beady yellow eyes, screech and whistle. Raise hell in a parking lot, fight over scraps of memories, and win. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we revisit the e-cigarette debate. Does it help smokers quit or is it a gateway for new smokers? Plus, what is mild cognitive impairment in the elderly? And some lessons to be learned from a missionary nurse. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.